This file is part of the Swiss Libri Lecture Podcast series. Feel free to share it with friends, family, and colleagues, but we ask you to respect our copyright. So feel free to share it online, but preserve this message and don't modify the file in any way. Also, the views expressed in the lecture and discussion time are not necessarily representative of the views of Liberty Fellowship. Okay, we'll get us started. So, uh, this lecture is, uh, it's a little bit unusual that we're doing this in this situation. There's four of us sitting here in the room, uh, which is uh, different than having a room full of students, but uh, we'll give this a shot anyways. So, uh, this lecture is um, a lecture that is hopefully going to be, well, I guess it, it, it's up to me, but it'll be part of a this bigger series that I've been working on over the past number of years called Barriers to Belief. And uh, this is, is one of the things that I've been meaning to tackle for a while, and I guess that it uh, worked out well that in this time of of lockdown and quarantine and all of that, that uh, this is the, the next subject on my list, which is boredom. So we're going to be talking about boredom today. Now, in his famous book, Pensée, Pascal says that the sole cause of man's unhappiness is that he does not know how to stay quietly in his room. I believe that one of the things that started me down the path of unbelief uh, way back when, when I was a teenager, was boredom. Now, it may sound like a somewhat trivial thing to talk about it because it's something that we all experience. It's something that's just a, a part of life. We all experience boredom at different points in our lives. Uh, some of us may be bored more often than others, and there may be moments in history where it occurs more often, but it's something that I think all people face at some point in their lives. So can the fact of simply being bored actually make faith harder or even impossible to hold on onto? And I think that the answer to this question is yes. In my own experience, I started to experience boredom in my faith and in my life as a teenager. And I'd been a Christian pretty much all my life. I'd participated in the church and youth group, and I did all the right things, avoided all the bad things, and yet I became pretty bored. And the things that my non-Christian friends were getting up to looked more interesting and exciting. So I looked at those living outside of my uh, Christian world and thought that their lives looked more enjoyable. I wanted what they had, or at least I wanted what I thought that they had. And so my boredom, I think, prompted me to look elsewhere. And I've talked to a lot of students over the years, and I'm pretty sure that my experience wasn't unique. I've heard a lot of people complain about boredom in their Christian lives. Not all of these people see this as justification to walk away from their faith, but some do. Some people aren't even aware of the damage that boredom can do to their faith. I think that boredom can lead people to disengage from the church, disengage from their Christian communities. There are people who don't participate because they just find the whole thing boring, or there's something they find more interesting and would rather do. And this isn't necessarily something that 
blocks belief. Rather, it can be something that just gets in the way of really engaging and really being a part of a Christian community. But it can become more than that, though. I think that boredom is more insidious than arguments against the existence of God. So no one says to themselves, I'm bored, therefore God doesn't exist. Uh, Boredom is more, I, I think it's more like cynicism. It gradually eats away at us, slowly but surely, prompting us to look uh, elsewhere for things like hope or answers or even just entertainment. And I think this is what happened in my own experience, my own life. I didn't just jump from boredom straight into unbelief. It was the beginning of a long journey that led me to a place where God was no longer relevant and eventually even uh, believable. So what I want to do in this talk is to begin by looking at what boredom is and provide a short history of boredom, how we've thought about it in the past, how we think about it today, and how we experience it today. So has this always been a concern, or is it a new phenomenon? And secondly, I want to think specifically about spiritual boredom, how boredom can affect the life of the Christian. And then finally, I want to spend just a little bit of time thinking about whether or not there's anything that we can actually do about our boredom. Uh, So apart from my own experiences, there are a few sources that I'll just mention here at the beginning. Uh, One is a book by a guy named Peter Tuhi, Boredom, A Lively History. Another one is called Boredom and the Religious Imagination by Michael L. Raposa. And a third book is by Richard Winter, Still Bored in a Culture of Entertainment. And then there's all kinds of information online, lots of uh, articles and essays and things that I uh, looked at as well. So let's uh, start out with some definitions of boredom. One dictionary defines boredom as the state of being weary and restless through lack of interest. The Cambridge Dictionary defines boredom as the state of unhappiness because something is not interesting or because you have nothing to do. So it seems as though a lot of the the definitions that I looked at uh, talk about a feeling of tiredness or impatience or restlessness that results from uh, a lack of interest in the things that are going on around you. Now, most authors talk about two kinds of boredom. The first is what we might call simple boredom, and it's a result of finding oneself in predictable and maybe repetitive circumstances. So there's usually a a sense of pointlessness to what you're doing. It's often lengthy and inescapable. It's the sort of thing that uh, you might be experiencing at the moment as you listen to me talk. And this kind of boredom is also sometimes called situational. Now, the second kind of boredom is described as complex or existential boredom. And this kind of boredom is much deeper and seems to infect a person's very existence. And it's usually linked with a loss of a sense of meaning. It's often associated with words like melancholy, ennui, depression, world-weariness, nausea, if you think of Sartre's famous novel, or despair. Tui claims that while this second kind of boredom gets a lot more press, it's probably actually experienced a lot less than the, the just simple boredom. 
So the first kind of boredom is something that everyone experiences at points in their lives, and maybe even at different points throughout the day. The line between these two kinds of boredom can be difficult to draw and even identify, though. Now, boredom in the second sense really starts to get noticed and described in the 18th and 19th centuries. In fact, the word boredom itself doesn't even appear until this time. Patricia Meyer Spacks, uh, she's uh, written a, a huge book, I think, on boredom. She sums up existential boredom and how it manifests itself in our contemporary culture. She says, fictional and poetic evocations of boredom multiply exponentially in the 20th century, partly for reasons implicit in the common understanding of modernism, which posits an isolated subject existing in a secularized, fragmented world, marked by lost or precarious traditions, a paradigmatic situation for boredom. Boredom provides a convenient point of reference for the cultural and psychic condition of those deprived alike of meaningful work and of pleasure in idleness. At once trivialized and magnified, boredom in its 20th century representations alludes to the emptiness implicit in a life lacking powerful community or effective tradition. Since everybody feels it, it hardly distinguishes its sufferers. It can constitute a way of life a fashion of speech, or both. So that's, that's quite a dense uh, passage there. But I think one of the, the, the key things that I pull out of it is this description is that with modernism came a picture of the isolated self in a world where community and tradition are seen as optional and where meaning purpose and place gets lost. And as well, in a, in a secularized world, religion can offer no solace. Now, many claim that simple boredom is like an emotion, and so in this sense, it's ambiguous. It isn't necessarily positive or negative. Some liken it to the feeling of disgust, in that it can encourage us to remove ourselves from a toxic situation. Like other emotions, boredom can teach people to adapt their behavior to their environment. It can protect us. But existential boredom isn't like this. It's much more difficult to describe, and it seems to play no adaptive role in our lives. It doesn't seem to be a positive role that it can, it can take. So an emotion that persists over a long period of time becomes what we call a mood, and a simple change of environment doesn't seem to overcome this deeper kind of boredom. Now, while the, world, while the word boredom is relatively new, the idea goes back quite far. The earliest detailed account of what we're calling existential boredom was written by a 4th century hermit named Evagrius in a book he called On the Eight Evil Thoughts. And he writes about the noonday demon, which he calls Acedia, that represents a specifically Christian existential boredom. Two, he says, it's the result of confronting the problem of God's plan and creation and wondering where do I fit into it. The response to this query was often a sneaking suspicion that it might be nowhere. 
And from that doleful answer follows the powerful feeling of spiritual emptiness, isolation, and apathy described by Evagrius. So ascidia is a word that ends up getting used a lot throughout uh, the ancient and medieval uh, Christian worlds in, in particular. And it refers to a spiritual sluggishness, a dullness in prayer, and boredom with the rituals of devotion. And it was also usually understood as a sin. Now, this is the closest thing that we can find in the ancient and medieval world to our understanding of boredom, to our current understanding of boredom. And today, this manifests itself as a feeling of depression, isolation, emptiness, and meaninglessness. So modern existential boredom is in many ways a descendant of this ancient description of ascidia. These monks were trapped in grim, predictable, stark, and barren circumstances, which would easily lend themselves to simple boredom. And so it's hard not to conclude that simple boredom is in some way at the root of existential or this deeper boredom. Now, Ascidia initially gets blamed on the noontide demon. And then later in Christian tradition, it's blamed on sloth or spiritual laziness. By the time of the Renaissance, ascidia comes to be conflated with melancholia, which is it's just basically a deep sadness. Existential boredom is typified by the breakdown in the relationship between the individual and the world about him or her. If you read pages from Sartre's novel, Nausea, we can see a clear connection between early descriptions of ascidia and modern existential boredom. The problem with likening ascidia with modern boredom, though, is that is that ascidia is usually uh, thought of as a sin, and in fact, it came to be one of the seven deadly sins, sloth. For some, spiritual boredom may result from one's failure to engage in appropriate spiritual exercises and to do nothing to alleviate it, and so there can be. Uh, a boredom, and when we're talking about ascidia, specifically a, a spiritual boredom for which a person is responsible. Not necessarily the case, but it can be that. Now, the term boredom as we use it today, though, seems to be a little bit broader than ascidia. Because spiritual boredom can also include the idea of spiritual dryness for which I am not responsible. Now, one of the questions that Tui asks in his book is, does boredom have a history? And he makes the claim that all humans have had the capacity for this emotion, but not all societies enable or require people to experience boredom. Many think, along with Spack, who I just quoted, that boredom is something that was invented in the 18th century. But Tui believes that this is a result of a confusion between simple and existential boredom. Now, for those who believe that boredom was constructed in the 18th century, they usually highlight four or five trends that occurred in the Enlightenment that gave birth to boredom. The first is that there was an increased importance given to leisure and a belief that we have a right to happiness. Secondly, There was a decline in Christian belief and growth in secularization, leading to a metaphysical void or demystification of the world that left us with no greater meaning in which to to situate our, our lives and the things that we do. 
Thirdly, there was a growth of concern for individual rights. And then finally, there was a growing interest in inner experience. Now, one author adds a fifth thing, bureaucratization. And he claims that boredom emerged in response to the rise of standardized, standardizing, organization of time and space. Now, a, a lot could be said, we just don't have the time, but a lot could be said about each of these points. I think each of them are, are really interesting, uh, but we're not going to get into them for the sake of time. So it seems that modern existential boredom, or at least how we experience it today, is largely a result of these modern trends. But it seems as though there's always been some form of this kind of boredom, and there's always existed simple or situational boredom, although different societies may experience this differently. For Tui, boredom is a normal, useful, and incredibly common part of human experience. He says it's there to encourage people to adapt their behavior to protect them from social toxins, just as its first cousin, disgust, is designed biologically speaking, to cause people to adapt their behavior to real physical toxins. Maybe boredom should be viewed in the way that gout, or angina sometimes is, as a sign of worse things to follow unless there's a change in lifestyle. So he talks about how it could be there to to encourage us to change our lifestyle, but I also think it could be there to encourage us to change our perspective on life as well. Michael Raposa sees boredom as a semiotic problem or a problem of interpretation. He says that the bored person fails to read the signs or interpret the situation or information as interesting or meaningful. He calls it an epistemic blindness and an inability to perceive the significance or the religious significance of things. So he thinks the problem is largely a hermeneutic one. Many people think of their feelings as something that don't need interpretation, but this isn't true. Our feelings, whether they're boredom or anger or joy or whatever, arise from an interpretation of our surroundings. So what often happens is that my feelings of boredom or the thought that I am bored often transforms into the thought, it is boring. So the problem is no longer mine, but the problem is with the situation or the person. It's those things that are at fault. They're failing to interest me. And so very often the solution to boredom becomes a search for new objects or situations or people that will interest me. So it becomes the endless search for diversion. Now this endless search for diversion, I think, is an apt description of our own culture's response to boredom today. Many people are constantly on the hunt for things to divert and entertain themselves. But I think that this becomes a vicious cycle. The more bored we are, the more diversion and entertainment we need. The more diversion we achieve, the more easily we become bored when we aren't being entertained. And so we seek even more diversion. So things like smart devices, Netflix, social media, all of these things stunt our attention spans. But the problem is wider than these obvious culprits. As Neil Postman pointed out years ago in his widely read book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, the problem has penetrated much deeper in our culture to the point that much of our serious communication has become entertainment. 
And I think that this is even possible to identify in our churches. We play into this in our well-meaning desire to engage people and bring them into our communities. Richard Winter suggests that it's possible that today's boredom is not a result of understimulation, but rather overstimulation. In the last 150 years, the hours that the average American works has drastically decreased, while the number of hours of leisure has obviously increased. And studies have shown that one of the main ways that Americans have tended to use much of that free time in recent years is to watch TV. But this study that he's referring to was done in 1985, and I'm sure that more recent studies will show that the, the majority of this time is spent on our devices, which is even a more solitary pursuit than something like television. And I read somewhere that in 2008, the average adult American spent 18 minutes per day on their phone. In 2018, the average was two hours and 48 minutes. That's two and a half hours more in just a 10-year uh, span. Winter says that when stimulation comes at us from every side, we reach a point where we cannot respond with much depth to anything. Bombarded with so much that demands our attention, we tend to become unable to discriminate and choose from among many options. The result is that we shut down our attention to everything. The boredom that we feel today is probably more likely to come from overload than underload. When we're surrounded by so much information, we find it hard to sort out what is relevant and important and to find meaning in anything. So today we live in a world of movies and TV shows depicting violence and sex, video games which do the same thing, reality TV, the bottomless rabbit hole that is YouTube, extreme sports, social media, online porn, all of these things are designed to cause addiction through constant dopamine hits. And we don't even need to leave our bedrooms anymore to find constant stimulation. Gene Veith writes, Boredom is a chronic symptom of a pleasure-obsessed age. When pleasure becomes one's number one priority, the result, ironically, is boredom. Winter also notes that the advertising in industry wants to breed dissatisfaction and discontent in regard to your possessions. They want you to want more than you have. They want you to covet and to ultimately become bored with what you have. I become dissatisfied with my year-old iPhone as soon as the newest one arrives on the market. So this is the sort of thing that we're faced with. One writer says of Walker Percy, Walker Percy's a, a southern novelist uh, uh, who died, I think, in the 80s, uh, one of my favorite authors, by the way. He says that for Percy, the typical alienated man is not some half-starving, half-crazed student out of a novel by Dostoevsky or Sartre, but precisely the well-fed, successful, middle-class man or woman who seemingly has it all and yet feels totally bored and empty. Okay, so now for a couple of minutes, I want to narrow down the discussion and talk more specifically about spiritual boredom, although a lot of what I say, these, these things overlap. Uh, Raposa, he claims that temporary feelings of joylessness or desolation 
are an inevitable part of the spiritual life, and that most theologians see them as a necessary feature. They can be signs that something is wrong. They can be things that will encourage us to do more or do better. Now, there are some interesting questions that arise when we think of spiritual boredom. To what extent am I responsible for my feeling of boredom? What do I do in response to those feelings? Is my boredom boredom something I can control? What, if anything, does my boredom signify? So what Reposa suggests is that my boredom may signify a lack of capacity or perhaps willingness to discern the full significance of a thing or a situation. So again, he's the one that sees this mainly as a problem of interpretation. He says that at the heart of the theological concept of acedia is the understanding of boredom as a consequence of too little love or an incapacity to love deeply. James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, argues that we are lovers of things before we are thinkers. As human beings, there will always be things in our lives that we love, and these things may not even be explicitly acknowledged. So the question that he asks is, what do we love? We may think that we love God, but we may be wrong. Augustine also, uh, way back, famously asked the question, what do I love when I love my God? If we're bored, what does this say about what we love? Perhaps our loves aren't directed where they should be. For example, do I love God? Or do I really love the feeling I get during a particularly moving worship service? The spiritual life is one of repetition. We talk about spiritual practices. And for many people, redundancy is a recipe for boredom. Redundancy is repeated behavior. Repeated behavior is habit forming. And habit is often thought of and experienced as boring. Habit and ritual seems to negate the possibility of intense, new spiritual experience. And above all else, what we want is new and intense. Habits shape belief, according to Pascal. Intellectual beliefs are fragile in a way that habits are not. So it's much harder to change a habit than it is to change one's mind. Pascal says that habits lead the mind and shape human inclinations. Both Raposa and Smith talk about the importance of habit and the idea of habit becoming what we sometimes call second nature. It's only someone who can do something habitually that can become truly creative. So if you think of somebody uh, learning to play the piano, repetition, habit-forming practice, is the only way for playing to become so ingrained that the person can truly become creative. So while their playing hopefully becomes creative and entertaining, it's also habitual. But obviously habit-forming has the potential to create temporary boredom, but this is inevitable and may be the price that has to be paid to create habits of feeling, thoughts, and actions. But, as with boredom, redundancy can be either good or bad, and it too is a matter of interpretation. 
The question is, why does redundancy in religious rituals sometimes lead to boredom and other times not? We can try to mix up our rituals, try something new, more exciting, but this usually only leads to a temporary relief. I think that creativity in religious practice is important and good, but it isn't necessarily something that's going to solve the problem. What's novel and fresh can quickly become tired and dry, and we don't want to end up in the endless pursuit of novelty and entertainment. When I grew up, I grew up in a very non-liturgical church setting. I had somehow taken on board the belief that the weekly repetition of the same words and practices was life-killing and maybe even idolatrous. This can be true. Liturgy in many high churches has become empty and deadening. But since we've lived here in Switzerland, we have attended an Anglican church. And the liturgy has come to mean more to me than any worship I've been a part of in my past. So my point is that novelty isn't necessarily better. And tradition, liturgy, and repetition can be really enriching. Boredom is often related to a a growing sense of the loss of transcendence. Traditional faith provided meaning for our lives, purpose and goals to strive for. Without God, we have to come up with this ourselves. All we are left with is ourselves. In his book, Lost in the Cosmos, Walker Percy wonders why a person is the only object in the cosmos that gets bored. He says that boredom is the self being stuffed with itself. Patricia Spax makes an interesting observation about the relationship between religion and boredom when she suggests that a decline of the Christian faith has led to an increase in boredom. She says, As a 20th century theologian has pointed out, boredom can usefully be understood as faith's opposite, where faith for good or bad, is a tremendous drive toward relationship and contains all the energies that we associate with with the life of wishing and longing, boredom moves in just the opposite way. The history of commentary on boredom shows a steady decline in faith. Those are interesting words, I think. So what can we do about boredom? I don't want to suggest that anything these authors or that I say is going to offer a solution to boredom. Boredom is always, I believe, going to be a part of of the human experience. But there are things that we can do to uh, alleviate our boredom, I think. Uh, Raposa argues that spiritual boredom, and I would say boredom generally, is very often a failure of human imagination. Nothing is intrinsically boring. What's boring to one person can be of great interest to to another. So the boredom is ours. And Winter argues that as with gifts like intelligence and physical strength, imagination, creativity, and interest in life are parts of being created. These gifts, though, can be cultivated and strengthened, or they can be suppressed, ignored, and allowed to die. And there are aspects of our culture that contribute to the growth of these gifts and others that suppress their development. 
We need to look for those things that grow our interest in creativity and spend less time on the things that stunt this growth. Now, the difference may not always be be a clear cut, but I think that usually it's fairly obvious. So there are things that we can do about our boredom. There are ways that we can cultivate interest, imagination, creativity in these things. Raposa talks about the idea of, he gets quite deeply into a discussion of semiotics, and he talks about words and the way that we assign words to the things around us. Words are thought of as signs. A problem arises when we fail to see the depth of meaning of the thing symbolized, the thing behind the sign. So when I, when I encounter a person, I assign a series of signs to them. So, for example, I, if I encounter a, a 40-year-old British man uh, who's, uh, let's say, a psychiatrist or something, these are words that I assign to them. Now, I, I can just leave it there, uh, but the world around me would become quite boring if I failed to recognize the depth of the person that lies behind these simple words that I assign to them. Using a a really simple religious example, if I look at a cross, I can see it as two pieces of wood nailed together to form a particular shape. But obviously that's going to get boring pretty quickly. If I go deeper, though, I can discover an incredible meaning that the object just on its own doesn't convey. So seeing depth in things can sometimes take effort and practice on our part. And so there's a a, a sense that we need to be quite active rather than just passive receivers of the world around us. Mary Warnock says, The loss, then, is the loss of ability to see through objects in the natural world to what lies beyond them. For the joyless... Each thing is what it is, and it suggests nothing further. No intimations of immortality or infinity. It's the imagination which supplies such hints, which treats the objects of sense as potential symbols. So imagination is required. Raposa says, I construe the judgment that one ought to care about X, primarily as a judgment not about how one ought to feel, but rather as about the quality of one's attention. So while boredom is not something we think we can can control, our attention is, and it's through attention that we can sometimes generate interest. Richard Winter uh, suggests a number of things that can help to counteract boredom. And I'll just go through them fairly quickly. He's got a list of of six things here. First thing is, he says, remember the big picture. So the bigger picture provides meaning and a framework for our lives and for all of the boring details. Doing the dishes, weeding the garden, listening to a friend tell us about their their issues uh, again. Uh, All these things make more sense and become... Uh, better understood in the bigger picture. They're easier to cope with if we understand why we're doing them. The second thing is to delight in the simple and the ordinary, or to learn to stop and smell the roses. Our culture trains us to only value the extraordinary and to ignore the mundane. Winter mentions an article by Richard Simon entitled 
don't just do something, sit there, in which he claims that in our busy, frenetic, fast-paced lives, we've lost the ability to be quiet. And you can think back to that quote that I read at the very beginning about Pas- or from Pascal. The third thing is cultivating wonder. Our sense of wonder has taken a beating in our modern world. Things that were once awe-inspiring are now boring. Wonder, in this context, I think could be synonymous with interest. Interest doesn't just lie in the object that we're looking at. We are, at least in part, responsible for seeing something as interesting, remembering what Raposa said. G.K. Chesterton wrote to his future wife, I do not think there is anyone who takes quite such a fierce pleasure in things being themselves as I do. The startling wetness of water excites and intoxicates me. The fieriness of fire, the steeliness of steel, the unutterable muddiness of mud. The fourth fourth thing that Winter suggests may sound kind of obvious and and maybe easier said than done, but developing a passion, developing an interest. Interest helps us to cultivate habits and self-discipline. The fifth thing is active engagement rather than just passive expectation. Being bored is usually, at least in part, our responsibility. There are things we can do about it. Every parent knows this when their child complains that they're bored and claims that there's nothing to do. The problem is rarely a lack of things to do, but rather the motivation to do them. There's often the status of victim that is associated with being bored. And the last thing Winter talks about is what's called flow. And this is a psychological term for that time when we're fully engaged in the activity that we're performing, when we have that perfect balance between skill and challenge. The example that came to my mind was, for me, skiing. I've skied most of my life. And so when I'm skiing down a run, I... In a sense, I I lose uh, this sense of myself as I'm so absorbed in my activity. Everything else seems to lose focus. Now, this would be very different from somebody who's a beginner who has to think about every movement. And studies actually show that this takes place more in times of work uh, rather than in times of uh, leisure. Because if we're, if we're working beyond our abilities, I think it's we more easily become frustrated and even bored. But again, this is something that takes an active rather than a passive approach. So I guess his point is to, to look for or learn activities in which you can be completely engrossed. Now, these are all practical things that we might be able to do to, to help ease our boredom. And I also think that it might be worth honestly reflecting on our attitude towards the things that bore us. There is something about us that makes things boring. The opposite of being bored is being interested. But if I'm interested in something, I am, in a way, dependent on that thing. And Raposa makes the point that boredom is sometimes an attitude that people affect or put on to demonstrate their superiority with regard to certain persons, activities, situations. 
To be interested in something demonstrates a form of dependence on that thing. I draw upon it as a source of enjoyment and satisfaction. But many of us want to be strong and independent rather than dependent, which some see as a sign of weakness. Detachment and disinterestedness can be seen as a sign of strength. But for those of us who are Christian, this cannot be our response, particularly as it relates to our faith. Ecclesiastes 8, or 1, verses 8 to 10 say, All things are wearisome, more than one can express. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, or the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it can be said, See, this is new. It has already been in the ages before us. Now, this this is about as powerful a description of boredom as we'll find anywhere. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is doing in this book is describing two ways of seeing the world. One from the perspective of a person in a right relationship with God, and the other apart from a relationship with God. So our standing before God provides us with what we might call a hermeneutic lens. Apart from God, the world can become boring very quickly. Work, food, relationships, all the mundane things of the world in their endless, pointless repetition lose all value. They vanish like the wind. But the same things viewed as good gifts from God gain meaning, richness, and depth. So in other words, when our dependence on God is remembered, life becomes less boring. Good, thank you.